Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week I'm your host Charles Maxwood and we have a special guest that is Carl Bergenham. I hope I got close. Bergenham? I don't know. How do you say your name, man? Carl Bergenham. Bergenham. Yeah, yes. All right, well, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. So, uh, hi everybody. As mentioned, Carl Bergenham and I'm the product manager for Kendo UI and Kendo UI for Angular, of course, since we're, we're chatting about Angular today. Right. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. I'm, I'm a little curious as we kind of dive in. So you're the project manager. Usually the people that I've talked to about Kendo UI have been some kind of like developer advocate or developer evangelist or something like that. So what does your job entail? Yeah, so you know, I work very closely actually with our dev advocacy team. And what I essentially do is, you know, gather all the feedback that we have from our customers, as well as anything that I see within the community and, and the evolution of Angular as well, and put that all together and, and define the roadmap for our components, as well as anything else we might get up to in the Angular space, or really in the JavaScript development space in general. Right. So so what's new with Kendo UI? We've we've done episodes about it before, but it's been a while, so. Yeah, well, we just had a release in January, actually, and we're continuing to now develop uh, our next big release, was, which is happening in May. Along the way, we'll do some uh, small releases, but I think the, the biggest thing really is, since the last release is Angular 13 support, of course, so we had that uh, since day zero, but that happens to be one of the biggest things in general that's happened with Kendo UI for Angular. And we're uh, also rapidly preparing for Angular 14, since we know that that's going to be something coming later in 2022. And we're making sure that uh, all of our packages are IV compatible and, and ensuring that transition from 13 to 14 will be as smooth as possible. And in between there, you know, tons of new UI components, uh, features to existing components, etc. Right, that makes sense. I'm a little curious, do the updates to Angular really cause you to have to change a whole lot? or It really depends on the uh, releases in general. So far, we've had a pretty good luck with upgrading, especially, you know, from 10, 11, 12. It's been fairly uh, easy. Uh, but there are things that, that happen sometimes under the, uh, the, the hood that uh, actually affect uh, UI components like ours that might actually cause a little bit of a hiccup in terms of our ability to migrate and even our customers' uh, ability to migrate. So uh, there usually it's okay, uh, but there have been a couple of releases in the past where we've had to take a, a couple of extra days to make sure that we're fully compatible. Gotcha. That makes sense. One thing that I've always wondered about, and I, I've kind of, I've done both. I've done both in a couple of different areas, you know, whether it be way back in the day with jQuery or, you know, as we've kind of evolved through various frameworks, front end or back end, you know, server side rendered 
front end rendered, whatever. Sometimes I wind up either picking up or buying a component library or something that looks a lot like it, like Bootstrap, right? Which kind of gives you mm -hmm. a, a, a complete design system. And then other times kind of either built my own on top of what is provided there, or I've just built my own period because I, I just needed something specialized. When do you, where do you find the sweet spot is for something like Kendo UI versus say rolling your own thing? Yeah, I think the the first thing to kind of look at is what you're trying to accomplish with uh, with the UI components that you're either looking to pick off the shelf, buy, or or maybe even build on your own. As you mentioned, right, there might be some highly specialized scenarios where you know that this is never going to be reused. You know, it's very much just for this project, this one application, this one product, and you know that you have to build something very custom. And at that point, you know, that's you have to kind of set off on that path. But when it comes to picking something off the shelf, which can be both you know open source or and you're freely available or something that's commercial, I would say it depends on the, the kind of UI that you're uh, building, right? And I think especially when you start getting into some more advanced user experiences or, or maybe even some more advanced components, like, for example, a very heavy hitter within our library is the data grid, right, which allows you to do CRUD operations. So create, read, update, delete, you know, filtering, grouping, sorting, different types of editing, right, whether it's pop up in, in a dialogue, whether it's inline or an external form, etc. These kind of components can can be kind of complex to build. And I believe that every developer has the ability to build something like a data grid with these features. It's just a question of how much time will it take to first build and then also, of course, maintain, right? Because as much as we like to say that we can, th that we have the, the ability, right, to uh, write absolutely perfect code and there's no bugs ever. And uh, we know that, you know, ma maintaining things, dealing with bug fixes, et cetera, that can also eat in some uh, some time there. Mm -hmm. So when then, you know, you look at the decision of do we want to build something or do we want to buy something off the shelf? Really, the, the amount of time that it would take to build a data grid a scheduler or something like a spreadsheet component, right? Versus and you know, how many developers would need to uh, spend time on this, right? And are fully dedicated to it and not necessarily building other aspects of your application. Is that worth the potential licensing cost of buying, you know, an off the set suite of components and be able to, yes, there's some licensing costs associated with that, uh, but the productivity gain and, you know, not having to worry about that and also offload some of that development, right? Uh, you can ask for feature requests, you know, deal with the support ticketing system for help, et cetera. I think uh, that amount of productivity gain is something that uh, for certain projects is, is definitely much needed. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting, you know, you're talking about sort of the trade-offs and I've worked at some places that, yeah, they wouldn't spend $1,000 for a license that would have saved developers weeks of work. And I'm going, weeks of our salaries? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's crazy. The flip side is, is that, yeah, if, because I've, I've used some other libraries for data grids and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I pull it in and then I wind up having to do a bunch of work to heavily customize it. And so then we start questioning, okay, was it worth it versus whatever, because there's the learning curve to learn how to integrate with it and things like that. I still find that it's almost all always generally worth it if the base layer functionality is what you wanted, right? And if they yeah. give you the integration points you want. I mean, if you have to rewrite half the library to get what you want, then yeah, probably not. But especially for like data grids and some of the other bigger features that you're talking about, yeah, it'd take us months to build it and build it well versus, hey, we can buy it and we can spend a couple of weeks figuring out how to customize it. And we just saved ourselves literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in developer salary. And yeah, like you said, we get the stability out of it. 
if we have something that's, like I said, totally custom, there's nothing else really out there like it, even if it is like a data grid and it's just, hey, look, we've just got to customize it in these really odd ways that nobody's going to really give us a, a clean integration point to, then yeah. But I think those are so rare that, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's only going to be in really, really specialized industries that really, really need something super different. So. Yeah, we definitely come across that, right? Some very hyper-specific scenarios, which, you know, at that point, it is better to just know that the initial cost of this is going to be building out this uh, highly complex component. I've also seen, you know, the other side of that, right? We just need a couple of inputs, maybe a drop-down or two. And there's a lot of libraries out there that can can help with that. So so it really, it just says, you know, where do you land on that spectrum? Also, where do you maybe see it going in the future? I think a lot of times we run into folks that started by picking up something, you know, off the shelf that they can just use and customize a little bit, maybe they added two or three features to it. And then that very quickly became, well, here's another feature we like, and here's another feature. And, you know, as they are uh, using these UI components in the wild, right, and in production, they start getting more and more feedback that that ends up being, well, now we're recreating the wheel and and we're really going into uh, something that could have been good to pick up, you know, from from the beginning, right, as something that had all these features available, just they were set behind some sort of uh, configuration flag, right? Yep. Yeah. One other thing that I've done just to kind of run the entire spectrum is I found websites sell themes that are built in Angular and Mm -hmm. the themes give you a lot of those components. Some of them give them to you in kind of a clean component you can reuse. And some of them you actually have to go kind of extract what they did into the component that you want to reuse. And so you wind up splitting the difference there and figuring out where the lines are drawn. And and that's another nice thing about something like Kendo or some of the other ones out there is that a lot of times those component lines, you know, the delineation between the components is really clean. It's well thought out. A lot of people have used it and given feedback and it it kind of just flows in the way that you use it. Yeah. And that's, you know, I like to say that if if someone has thought of a scenario to add a UI component and we probably heard about it at some point, right? And yeah. it's probably available either from uh, w- within, you know, a feature that we just added or somewhere in, in our backlog. So we've, we've seen and heard it all. Of course, I'm, I'm still surprised every week by uh, some new set of requirements that comes in, but it is, it's a huge amount of uh, feedback that we get as well that, that helps us uh, integrate it into uh, the core UI library so that everybody can take advantage of it, uh, which which I think is a, is a big deal as well. You know, you're not dealing with the silo of, yeah, it's a one-off feature for, for one specific pr- uh, project. It's something that gets evolved for, for everybody that's uh, that's actively using the, the uh, right. set of UI components that we have. I need a podcast component. When are you going to build that? <laughs> that's a great question. Yeah, something like the, the studio we're in right now, right? And yeah, I right. a dedicated component. Yeah, yeah there we go. <laughs> No, I'm yanking your chain. Or the thing is, is I'm sure you have like an audio player component and you can kind of pull things together that way. So. Yeah, so, so we have some of that for sure, but not not. There's still some some fun things that we could potentially do when it comes to audio and video. That that mm-hmm. I think definitely a set of uh, components for something like this, or, or just in general, uh, we we rely a lot on the the native elements. I think for yeah. for dealing with with video and audio in the web and it, any kind of uh, UI that can help build on top of that, I think would be super helpful. Yep, absolutely. So let's say that I decide that I'm going to roll my own components. Right, I'm going to build my own UI components. But I have multiple projects that I'm going to want to use them on and I'd like to be able to share them. What have you found is the best way to put that together and make it 
available to all of my projects. Yeah, that d- it depends, I think, a little bit on if this is maybe an internal project they just want to have within your own company and, you, and either within your team or maybe teams, right? We see some larger companies try to create kind of an internal repository or, you know, could even be that you have something that you think you can have that's open source, right? That the general community can be built around and share. But I think the that what what really has happened with the evolution of maintaining these projects internally is that it's not just hey we have this uh, file that you can copy and paste and and kind of throw around right within source control and you're off to the races. I think a big part of this is thinking about the modules that you can build uh, for you know that make up this this library. So whether it's UI components or helper classes to go along with the with the UI components to think about it that you're really publishing it for for developers that, that you don't. No, let, let's just say that even for internal internal applications, I think it's good to have the practice set in play that, well, what if somebody picked this up from the wild, right? Which allows you yeah. to, you know, package it like, for example, as an NPM package that can be shared internally, right? And distributed in a way that you would to public NPM repository, you know, maybe even, you know, some are publicly available on GitHub and treat, uh, treat these projects that way because it allows you to then think of, well, okay, th- there's not just the, um, the UI component itself and the functionality and sharing that, but also documentation, how to get started and everything that goes around the component, including testing and everything, right, that you can include as a part of this package and and make it readily consumable by other folks within your organization. I think that's a really good way to, uh, to you know, from the get-go uh, think about it because chances are, if you're developing something for your team, either your team's frustrated with what's already av- that's currently available and you need to do something new, maybe there are no standards set currently and you're the first team that's doing something like this. Even if you're not planning to have other teams pick this up, I do believe that there's enough times I've seen that happen where a team starts and says, well, we just did this for our own project. And then enough teams liked what they were doing <laughs> that they're now a UI component vendor internally, right? That they're uh, developing this library now. That's what they're focused on. Yeah. And I think if you're, it might not always happen, you might not have that uh, level of, of success with it accidentally spreading like wildfire. But if you start off the thinking about it that way, I think it, it helps immensely with your own team, as well as any other teams that might want to pick it up. No, it's true. I can't tell you how many times it's either worked out where we pulled something out and vendored it, right? Where it's like, we're doing this just because we know we have another project that's going to use it. Or we solve a problem and then another team comes along and says, you guys solved a problem that we're trying to solve now. And so that's when we pull it out and write. Yeah. And whether or not, yeah, we ever intended anybody else to have to use that code. All of a sudden we're going, oh, oh these guys are going to use it now. And we don't even remember what we did because we all just kind of had this shared context that now <laughs> we have to get somebody else in on. So, Yeah. And is there certainly a level of overhead that comes with that, right? Of, of thinking yeah. that way f- from the beginning, but it makes makes it so much easier for any potential handoff in the future. Yeah. And now I would even say for onboarding, even if you think just about your own team, how do you onboard new team members? If you just have this mess that's kind of being uh, not necessarily packaged in this way or, or documented properly or whatever it might be, it'll also be difficult to bring in new folks on board to your own team. So thinking about things this way, I think helps Yes, eat some of the costs along the way, but it's it pays off in dividends uh, down the road for sure. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about how how to organize the library. I mean, you talked about modules and and things like that, but yeah, let's let's say that yeah, I get I get all the way into this. 
by the way, the deeper you get into this, the more you start to appreciate these uh, done for you solutions. But yeah. let's say that I, you know, I, I start really getting down the rabbit hole and it's like, all right, you know, now I've got a whole bunch of these components. How do I organize that so that it keeps the library maintainable and usable and stuff like that? Yeah, I think the 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 biggest thing around building UI components, and there's some analogy also to the language that you might hear uh, nowadays with design languages, right? Of going down, you know, to atoms, molecules, and you know, you essentially uh, building on top of the smallest building block into something bigger. And right. I think that's true, even if you don't want to use that terminology, and even if you don't want to think about this as a design system or design language, I do believe that architecting things that way, and at least thinking about okay. I have a text box, right? A, a basic mm-hmm. input. All right. Uh, so wh- what can I use that input for? Is that going to be one core input that I use everywhere? Am I going to have some specific nuances to that? Like, for example, an input with a mask on it? Uh, how flexible mm-hmm. do I want to make that mask? Should it be the same component or, or different components? And then just from a simple input, you can evolve that to a uh, dropdown. So in- instead of a regular select element, right, where you interact with the element and it drops down, maybe you want to have something... We call it a combo box where you can type into a text box and then a pop-up appears with with your uh, available options and you can select one or two. And then, you know, these can feed into more complex components like list view where you want to be able to have some editable elements or uh, a data grid that you want to be able to have, you know, in-cell editing very similar to a spreadsheet where you can tab through and have a text box uh, responsible for one field, a drop-down for another, maybe a date picker for the next. Um, If you start kind of mapping these things out in terms of what UI components that you need, you can then start figuring out some common DNA that that these all have and and try to make that a way to be able to, you know, make these a little bit more maintainable. So that input Mm -hmm. can be one particular package that can then for the mass text box, that could be something that is dependent on that input. And then you just apply, uh, you know, some additional logic around how to display a mask, how to validate that the mass is correct, et cetera. Uh, and same thing then with the dropdowns. Maybe for some of the dropdowns, you want to rely on that that input. And then anytime you update how big an input should be uh, or it, some of the look and feel around a regular text box, you can update it in one place and then all these other components can can inherit from it and that makes it far more maintainable. Uh, you, of course, still have to do tests to make sure that any changes you do to the core library doesn't ripple and, and cause a bunch of issues to, to the others, which is, of course, a little bit of, of the side effect there. But to make things more maintainable and to make them a little bit more structured, I think having that initial plan and trying to think of when to uh, maybe even extract functionality within your UI component to a separate component and then uh, build additional components on top of that as you build up the complexity, I think that's a very big part of, of being successful with with building any type of a UI library. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm here with uh, JD from Raygun. JD, we've been talking quite a bit lately about Core Web Vitals and keeping track of the performance of your applications. And one of the hard things is is that you kind of get this aggregated data from Google that changes over time, but it's got this lag on it. And I, I think we actually had some folks from Raygun where we were talking about, in particular, this problem and having some some way of getting faster feedback on this kind of a thing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Google's official guidance is that you should be looking for a RUM tool and not relying on snapshotted data. So Raygun's RUM tool will collect all your core web vitals. And last time I checked, I think we were at about four to five seconds lag on ingesting data. So pretty close to real time on, on how you're performing there. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, we have first class support in our real user monitoring product. Yeah, real user monitoring means that each request that comes in, each track that people follow, that's what gets tracked. And so you know your numbers right away. Yeah, that's right. Actual data from actual users. It's so much more valuable than synthetic data. Um, and you also collect it across the entire user base. So you can see like, who are my 1%, you know, most disenfranchised users who experience the worst sort of performance. And, you know, between between us, Chuck, I'm stoked that Google's doing this because as a user of software, I want my software to go fast. And I'm really glad they're creating a business incentive for all of us to work on the performance of our software. Yep, absolutely. So folks, if you want a real user monitoring tool that'll keep you on top of your core web vitals, go check out raygun.com and you can actually just sign up for a free trial. One other thing that I'm wondering about is let's say that I do pull in a Kendo UI or some other similar solution, right? Open source, not open source, Mm -hmm. whatever. How much work is it to build my own component that kind of has the same look, feel, similar APIs, things like that, as opposed to maintaining my own complete UI library? Yeah, it really depends on how the libraries are structured. And oftentimes they have the styling is a little bit separated from the functionality, mm-hmm. which means that if you're able to, then you, you, sh- you can, you know, pick up the CSS classes. Can borrow or, it, yeah. Exactly. And apply that to your own components. And that, that also then gives you a chance to be able to create coarse, stylized kind of look and feel. And, and in a way, you're kind of creating a design language or design system at that point, right? Because you want to say, well, for, for the checkbox or for the uh, input again, we want this common look and feel across every type of component, even if we develop it ourselves. And at that point, what's happening is that the design is kind of leading the way for that standardization. And you can mm-hmm. uh, hopefully then inherit uh, the CSS classes and and everything that's been done in that library already and just use those within any custom components you're creating yourself right yeah that makes sense and and i can definitely see that i i see that a lot with sort of the angular bootstrap approach and things like that right where yeah they just yeah they pull in the css they tweak what they need to and then yeah, just use it. Yeah, and I think that's a really good example. Or, you know, Angular Material, right, coming out of mm-hmm. the box uh, for, for Angular developers, where yeah. that's where a lot of folks get started, which makes a lot of sense. It comes directly from from the from Google uh, themselves, Google, yeah. right? And, you know, it gives you a core set of library, uh, CSS classes, and, of course, also UI components within the library that you can use to build on top of. But even if you deviate a lot from what's available out of the box and, you know, create very custom components, having that start either with Bootstrap or material design as, as your design language, uh, or if, again, if you want to avoid the term and just think of the look and feel uh, and have that then be what you build your own components on top of makes makes a lot of sense. There's so much that they've thought of already out of the box you can just inherit from. It might be as easy as just working with some SAS variables, for example, and just mm-hmm. modify those a little bit to fit your own uh, needs for colors. And, and then you're off to the races and, and then you've already ha- have quite a head start on the developing your own custom components. Makes sense. I'm also curious as we kind of dive into this, since you are doing the project management for Kendo UI, we've kind of talked about the nuts and bolts of how it goes together. But I'm also curious how do you envision people actually using a UI system like Kendo UI, right? So whether I build my own or I import something else, how how do people build UIs in ways that 
take advantage of what these UI systems offer? Yeah, so you know, there's there we have over a hundred components, so there's a lot of different uh, scenarios that, that we cover. So the answer can really be uh, vary depending on on what what folks are are doing, right? But we see um, a lot of uh, dashboards and kind of you know admin dashboards or a lot of data intensive applications being built with with our UI components. And I think big part of really any usage of a library like ours is, is figuring out what are the main goals behind. The, the user experience of our application. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be, yeah, we're editing. There's an underlying SQL database somewhere that uh, that we're modifying and, and updating, really, but it's, it's the UI that, that's readily available for them. And if that's just one plain view, that should be easy enough. You know, you can toss the data grid in there and, and mm-hmm. add some CRUD operations and wiring up, you know, to, to your services and you're good to go. But there might be some more advanced scenarios that require multiple screens. So a lot of a lot of what we uh, preach is also, you know, thinking about the overall user experience before you even start adding uh, UI components into your application and be mm-hmm. kind of strict with what page should do what and how do you, you know, navigate to and, and from, from these pages? Is it a part of an natural workflow? Do you end up on one particular page to edit one specific set of data or and then, you know, move to the to the next tab or whatever it might be, right? There, there's a lot of different approaches you can take uh, to building something with, with these components. But the underlying, I think, idea that everybody should constantly have is what is the user experience going to be like? And yes, you have might, might have a set of requirements, but how does this all look from the user's perspective and and how are they going to interact with with the components and, and really the, the entire rest of the application. And that will then end up determining a lot of, uh, of how you uh, end up using a library like ours. Right. That makes sense. Are you geared more towards single page apps or... Uh, we've really covered just, just about everything. So we do have... Uh, the ability to do server-side rendering ahead of time, compiling, tree shaking, all these good things that come out of uh, the Angular framework. So yes, single page applications, they're, they're great to uh, to work with kind of UI, but you can also do a lot of more kind of advanced application structures, essentially, as long as the Angular framework allows for it, uh, you have the ability to, to use our components there. And, you know, so so then it depends on, you know, what's your definition of a, of a spa versus some of the other types of applications that you, that you can set up. But uh, with, with Angular, you have so many options now, even coming from, from the core framework itself, that, that it's just something that being built for Angular, we just have to make sure that we're a part of, you know, any and all scenario that, that the Angular framework can cover. I got you. Now, you keep talking about like Kendo UI, Angular. So you support other frameworks as well, right? We do, yeah. So, so Kendo UI, just that itself is kind of a bundle of, of UI component libraries where we built a UI library uh, from the ground up for each one of the JavaScript libraries and frameworks that we support. So we started in the jQuery days, which is where a lot of people might know mm-hmm. us from. And then we moved into Angular. Uh, we built a set of native UI components for Angular from the ground up. And we also have done the same for React as well as uh, Vue. So those are the kind of uh, the, the four uh, major JavaScript libraries that we support today. Gotcha. So what's coming next? I mean, what, what do you see coming down the pipe for the web that affects you and what's coming down the pipe for Kendo? 
Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that we see coming out in the pipe for for us right now on the on the Angular side specifically is of course Angular fourteen. Like I mentioned, you know we're we're prepping for that, making sure that we're we're compatible there, and you know just making sure that nothing surprises us with fourteen. <laughs> but outside of that, in the web in general, something that we're always keeping an eye on is we've been talking about uh, you know UI components, but the idea of web components, right? Uh, since uh, being in the in the component uh, space, we oftentimes think about uh, you know web components components as this uh, great core concept within the web that if it, it can truly deliver on its promise, right, of having some custom, you know, HTML components that can then be reused, uh, it'd be terrific for, for us. And I think a lot of uh, developers would also enjoy that since if you switch from Angular to React or, you know, whatever new framework comes out in the future that you want to switch to, that that you can still uh, utilize, uh, you know, these core set of web components. We uh, constantly keep an eye on that ourselves, but for some more advanced components like our data grid, scheduler, you know, some of these other the components. We're not quite happy with what we've been able to build in terms of our proof of concept. So it's not quite there, but I always say this might be the year for it because uh, browser vendors are are still adding some of these standards and still evolving evolving what they support. And then with new uh, libraries like uh, Lit, for example, which it, you know, seems to be kind of a spiritual successor to Polymer. Uh, we might be able to see some some additional, you know, heavy hitters within the industry like Google themselves coming out with with more libraries to support this. So mm-hmm. that's on our radar in, in the web in general. And I think something that the um, folks should keep an eye out, uh, you know, no matter what type of applications they're building, just keeping up to up to date with with the latest evolution there. Right. You could, You said that was lit. Yeah, yeah, lit elements. So that's, I think it might even be version two might already be out. So that's something that should just be under lit.dev, actually, lit.dev. And it's a it's an exciting project just from the sense of really giving a web components, I think, uh, so some fresh some fresh life or fresh breath of air. And it's been evolving pretty fast recently as well. So it's definitely a library to keep your eyes on if you're interested in, in web components and not necessarily, you know, something specific to specific to a, a framework or library. I'll have to check that out. You triggered my uh, imposter syndrome. I'm the JavaScript jabber guy and I'm supposed to know this stuff. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I haven't no. heard of that one. Yeah, anyway. it, that's that's my every day. Every day I wake up to see yeah. something new. Yeah, it's so, so true. Uh, <laughs> so true. Yeah, it, it's, I, I think it's it's the same for everybody, right? It's like, oh, should I have known about that? Yeah, anyway. yeah. And, and I think it's, we're surrounded by that, right? Especially, you know, State of JavaScript recently came out and there were a couple of uh, libraries that were mentioned there. I was like, wait, I think I've heard of these, but now I need to deep dive into them too. Yeah, uh, right. To just sound intelligent about them. So yeah, it's it's a little bit easier, I think, now than it used to be in, in the early days, you know, with Angular JS and moving into Angular, new front end framework came out every single day, it felt like, right? Oh, like I know, it was right? yeah, and everybody had created their own. There was something wrong with the existing ones and they wanted to create their own slice. We've yeah. managed to stabilize a little bit, which helps. But then, of course, there's a ton of tooling around web development and things like this, right? With web components that that random libraries might pop up here and there. So the the shift might not be on on uh, hey, this week you need to rewrite everything into a new framework again. But there's still a lot of tools that, that you need, uh, try to keep track of for sure. Yeah. Speaking of that kind of rapid evolution of the market, so what if I am using something that isn't strictly speaking? Angular Reactor View. So let's say I'm using Svelte or mm-hmm. even something more, what's the word? Maybe less, less like JavaScript, like Elm, right? Where it's transpiled or something like yeah. that. So how do, how do you play with some of those? 
Yeah. So, so specifically uh, from from kind of UI's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So really, because because of the fact that we're building something from from the ground up for each one of these libraries, what what you essentially have to do if if you're really interested in something like that today is to see if uh, one of these uh, libraries might share some common DNA that you could potentially reuse. Like for example, uh, React and Vue have some commonality in the underlying engine that allows you to uh, you know reuse a lot of concepts and maybe even reuse some code between. Uh, between the two. But you know, since Kendo UI is is each one of the products is built specifically for for these libraries, it can be a little bit tricky to then say, well, I'm gonna pick up Svelte and you know use mm-hmm. the set of components for, for Svelte, for example. Uh, so there are ways to, to wrap around the components that can work kind of in the meantime. But really what we're constantly on the lookout for is to see, you know, should we build a new set of UI components for one of these libraries, you know, as they gain popularity. And additionally, you know, something like if we can have a structured set of web components, for example, we might be able to have something that can then work for for these libraries in the future. But if that if someone listening today says, well, I really want to work with Svelte and I want to use Kendo UI, at this point, your options are a bit limited. And the, the best I think that you can probably do is either try to wrap around one of the libraries that we have, or maybe uh, what we were talking about earlier uh, with um, reusing some of the uh, styles that are associated with our components. So if you customize the library today, for example, for your Angular applications, and you want to be able to move some of that over into Svelte, you can reuse a lot of the styles and CSS classes, etc., in order to start, you know, structuring out some of your own UI components. If if you have, you know, a need for for, for some of those in Svelte or uh, any one of the other uh, frameworks, that's not the solid JS is another one that you could potentially mm. want to pick up. Makes sense. I don't know if I have any other questions specific to this. Are there any other challenges or successes or stories you want to tell us about your experience, you know, working on Kendo UI or some things that your customers have done with it? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, really, I think that the fun, most fun part about my job is uh, the ability to move between uh, frameworks like I have been doing. So having jQuery, Angular, React, Vue have have those questions and potentially even you know, Svelte or other frameworks pop in, into, in, onto my plate every single day. It's it's a lot of fun with the with the variation of being able to have one product that uh, or set of products that can allow you to to move between all those different frameworks. I think the the, the biggest thing to keep in mind uh, for anybody out there that's trying to make a decision or have has uh, maybe a mix of these uh, within their own company is to specifically on the kind of UI side what we've done is that all these libraries share a common rendering. So text box looks and feels the same for jQuery, Angular, React, or Vue. And that means that if you customize the themes that we have available and the CSS files that we have available to make them look and feel like your own components, then you can reuse that just by copying those files over into, into the next project. Uh, so, so I think a really interesting thing that I've seen a lot of our customers do is, you know, for especially for large organizations that don't necessarily want to have, you can only do things exactly one way, they want to give teams a little bit of flexibility is to be able to take that you know core set of styles have them be completely universal essentially for these JavaScript mm-hmm. frameworks and then and uh, then be able to pick up our components and some are working in some teams are working in angular some teams are working in react but they still share uh, a lot of knowledge and, and a lot of right. uh, a lot of uh, sometimes even code uh, because of how the projects can, can be set up and I, I think that's interesting as as we see you know a lot of people get into these camps of oh it's angular or nothing right or it's 
it's view or nothing or whatever the, the mm-hmm. library might be. Uh, but at the end of the day, they, they share a lot of core concepts. So it's, it's interesting to see uh, these teams be successfully navigate how to have several libraries and that they support and, and develop applications with and be able to successfully scale that. So if people want to learn more, if they want to go check out Kendo UI, where do they get it? Yeah, they can just go to actually kendoui.com. So fairly easy, uh, K-E-N-D-O-U-I. Uh, dot com. And uh, from there, you'll be able to essentially pick your fra- favorite JavaScript framework and, and uh, go on from there. So that, you know, we have all of our docs and demos available online. We have the source code available for our, our samples. You can open them right up in Stackblitz so you can tinker around with it and, you know, share it internally even uh, without downloading anything locally or, or committing it into your project. So it gives you a chance to be able to experiment a little bit with it as well. And yeah, it really makes it uh, easy to, to get up and running with it and start playing around with the components uh, with, without you know, a huge amount of commitment. Awesome. And if people want to connect with you online, where do they find you? Yeah, so they can find me on Twitter. So at Carl Bergenham. I'm not going to spell that out, hopefully within the uh, description of the... Uh, yeah, we'll put a uh, link in the show notes. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah, just, just because my last name is a little bit long, so we can spend half the podcast on just me spelling that out. Uh, but uh, yeah, they can just find me at Carl Bergenham on, on Twitter, and my DMs are open if anybody has any questions. Uh, you can feel free to reach out. Awesome. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. All right. Well, the last segment of the show is picks, and that's just shout outs about stuff that we like. I'll go ahead and go first, and then that way you kind of get a feel for how it works, and then you can go ahead and shout out about whatever you want. I always pick a board game during my picks. It's something that kind of started way back with Ruby Rogues. I think it was Avdi did a beer pick every week. Oh, okay. And since I don't drink beer, what's kind of my guilty pleasure or not so guilty pleasure? And for me, it's it's board and card games. So I'm going to do a, a quick pick on this one. I'm going to pick Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. And if you're wondering, Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza, it's a card game. I've been playing it with my kids mostly lately. And essentially what you do is you each take turns. So you all have a pile of cards in front of you. You take turns flipping a card over and putting it on top of the stack. And if... The first person says taco when they put the card down, no matter what it is. Taco, the next person cat, the next person goat, cheese. If what you say is what's on the card, then everybody slaps the pile and the last person who slaps the pile has to take it. So it's pretty simple, right? And then there are special cards. So there's the narwhal, the gorilla, and the groundhog. And with those, you have to do a special action before you slap it. And when those come up, no matter what you're saying, because those cards are not in the rotation of uh, card types that you're calling out. They're not a taco cat, goat, cheese, or pizza. Whenever they come out, you you just you do the actions and slap the pile. And you win when you run out of cards, and then you're the first person to slap the pile with no cards in front of you. Oh, okay. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. My teenagers really enjoy it. 
My six-year-old really enjoys it, even though she usually winds up with the biggest stack of cards because she's not as fast. But we have a good, good time playing it. So uh, I'm going to shout out about that. I just found out because I've been picking these and I've been trying to tell people, hey, you know, it's the, this this game's a little more involved or a little less involved. And I was talking to some friends last night, so I'm going to pick Board Game Geek as well. But apparently, if you look up a game on Board Game Geek, it will tell you how complex the game is, right? So they have a weight on a scale of one to five. So a lot of the games that I've been picking rank, rank in the threes, like the, the, the more complicated games that I've been picking rank in the threes. And those tend to be the ones that I enjoy playing the most. But anyway... So just to give you an idea, this one is a 1.03 weight. So it's it's a fairly simple game. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to start when I shout it out. I'm going to start uh, calling out the weight on these games. And that way you kind of get a better idea of, oh, this one's this one's more involved. This one's less involved. And yeah, I don't have to try and tell you. Yeah, if you don't like complex games, you might not like this one. I can just give you the weight and then you can go, oh, threes are a little bit heavy for me. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. So yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to just let y'all know. But Board Game Geek is awesome. They they actually have ratings of all the games. They list the the hot games that are out there. So right now over on the the left-hand side when I'm looking at it, it looks like there's a Dune-based game, Arrakis: Dawn of the Fremen, Hamlet, Sleeping Gods, Distant Skies. I haven't played any of these. Ark Nova, Borderlands, Dune Imperium, Sleeping Gods. Anyway, so they've got a list of all these Lost Ruins of Arnak, I've picked on the show before, and it's like the 10th from the top. I haven't played any of the rest of them that are listed in the hot games right now. But anyway, that's they also have a top 100. And so if you're just out there looking for games, those are the ones that people tend to like the most. And it'll also tell you how long it takes to play the game and stuff, right? So Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza, it says it's a 10 to 30 minute game. That's pretty accurate. But yeah, it's it's fun. It also tells you like Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza, it's two to eight players, but it says community. So if you're out there playing with a bunch of people, three to eight players is is better and best is four to five. So you have the best experience of four to five players. Anyway, so yeah, I'm going to just uh, shout that out as well. And then one last thing, and I, I'm just giving people updates on Top End Devs. So Top End Devs, I am finalizing the schedule for the rest of the year for our summits. And so if you would like to speak at, say, an Angular Summit sometime that's not when ngconf is going to be so it's not going to be in august or september i'm looking at like november is when i think i'm going to pull it out but it'll be a completely online conference looking for speakers uh the way that we do the speakers is is we do a 30 minute 30 to 45 minute recorded talk and then we'll have you on live for another 30 to uh, 15 to 30 minutes of q a is the way that we do that and then we publish all that for people who have paid for the conference. So if you're interested, uh, come check us out at topendevs.com slash conferences. Uh, also looking at getting meetups going next week or next month. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, new courses coming out here uh, by the end of the month. So anyway, come check it out. If you sign up for a subscription, then you get a discount on all the summits. And we'll be doing summits on all of the things that we cover. So we'll have a JavaScript one. We'll have a Ruby one. We'll have an Angular one. We'll have a React one, a Vue one, an Elixir one. So a DevOps, machine learning. Anyway, you get the idea. So if we have a show about it, we'll probably do a a summit about it. And I'm trying to pull together meetups about it. So anyway, uh, those are all my picks. Top end devs, if you want direct coaching on on your career, I also do that. Or if you want to start a podcast, you can go find it at podcastplaybook.co. And yeah, that's all the stuff I've been working on lately. I've uh, really been enjoying that. And then one last pick, 
And this is a movie that my wife and I went and saw last week, and we really enjoyed it. it was Death on the Nile. So it's it's an Agatha Christie uh, a Poirot movie. It, it was a lot of fun. So really enjoyed that. Carl, do you have some picks, some things you want to shout out about? Yeah, I'll plus one the uh, the Board Game Geek uh, website just to, if you really want to get into board games, I use that myself personally. It's, it's a lot of fun to be able to see what, you know, upcoming games are coming as well as, you know, some of the heavy hitters from the past. I definitely agree with you. Check out the, the weight and the, the rating there in terms of complexity, because uh, looking over some of the top 100, I know that uh, some of the the games took yeah. me an entire weekend with some very serious board game players to be able to figure out and to be able to have you know a good solid game from start to finish. And some of them are are, are very uh, quick. I will say probably one of my favorite ones. It's not in the I think it's like in top one fifty or something. That is uh, Jaipur. It's a two person game, so it's ex- exclusively just for another person. But it's it's been a lot of fun for for us here uh, to to be able to play that uh, and do some one on one action. And it's 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 a good of time uh, and it's very quick to pick up and the games you know last half an hour or something like that at mm-hmm. most and you know you can go through pretty quickly but my other shout out i think would be uh, a game that just launched uh, on pc uh, lost arc and uh, for the folks that haven't heard of that it's essentially an mmo rpg so think you know world of warcraft final fantasy uh, 14 all, all those games mixed with a diablo style kind of gameplay so diablo 2 or 3 for those that are uh, familiar with that mm-hmm. And the biggest thing, it's uh, free to play. So if you can dip your toes in it, you can play for as long as you want to uh, without actually having to, to pay for anything. And uh, most of the things that you pay for are cosmetic. That's essentially how, how they make their make their money. You know, so the mounts you can ride around on, you know, maybe you want to ride around on a pinata instead of a horse, you know, th- things like that. But I've been really enjoying it so far, sunk a lot of hours into it. And uh, it's it's a big pick just because it's it's free to pick up. So, you know, there's there's no commitment uh, and, and you can, you know, I, I know folks that are putting hundreds of hours already and they've had a lot of fun with it. A lot of different classes, a lot of different play styles uh, to, to work with as well. So and, and there's just a ton to do. So if you like some mindless activities, you can do that. If you like some more little intense, you know, either some PVP or some fun mechanics, you know, fighting monsters, there's a lot of good coming out of that. So, so that's probably one of my top picks right now. Now. Yeah, I'm having flashbacks to World of Warcraft and Evercrack. I mean, Everquest. So. <laughs> yeah, the, the good thing here is that, you know, like I said, the commitment is is free, right? And it's, it's not until you either want maybe some uh, quality of life improvements uh, that you might want to pay for or uh, or that yeah, just cosmetics, which is nice since sometimes, uh, you know, some of these free to play games have uh, some quick shortcuts you can take, you know, just by paying. Right. Yeah, it seems like that's the way a lot of the games on your phone and stuff are going these with these days too right it's like hey come play for free and then it's going to take you two months to upgrade now so yeah exactly. anyway fun stuff all right well thanks for coming this was a lot of fun uh we'll yeah. go ahead and wrap up here and until next time folks max out bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more